Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. London is burning, or is it? That makes this This Is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience. Unlike Betsy, bloy me! We were talking about how, you know, Kitty Pride is all you can really talk about if you're talking about Marauders. And I loved our discussion on Marauders last time. And we closed things out with an interesting theory on why perhaps Kate can't be coming back. And Kyle, I think you were the one who posited that what if it has something to do with the ever increasingly creepy Mr. Ramsey, Doug, Cypher, guy up to no good with a secret robot hanging out on his arm. Now, Kyle... You normally stand, Doug. I normally do, but he's been kind of creepy lately, you know? Oh, I sure do. It's been a terrible way to introduce the character to Jonah. Oh, no. Yes, it has been. He's weird and he's creepy. And I know that Nico loves him because Nico loves creepy alien babies, i.e. I love Warlock. I could live without Cypher. Yes, but you also like dupe and you like Baby Brew. You have a thing for aliens. I do. Daddy loves his little freakies. Jonah brought up a really great point, which was pointing out that Warlock has made his two appearances now in Dawn of X in the pages of X-Men number seven and Giant Size Nightcrawler, both of which happen to be very Nightcrawler-centric stories. They both extensively deal with ghosts and the past. The Crucible isn't really just a Crucible. It's making an apology for this editorial decision that was the House of M M deifying of the X-Men. And, you know, not that I think Mr. Casada did anything wrong in particular with the M-Day move. It was an interesting dimension to the storytelling, but, you know, originally it was 198 mutants, and then it was there's 198 mutants minus the X-Men. Then it was like, there's a vague random list of number of mutants. And you sort of had to run with it. And then at the same time, Giant Size Nightcrawler is about the remnants of the mansion. It's about the fallout of Grey Malkin. And, you know, I, I find Grey Malkin to be this... It's just so fucking central to what the X-Men are that we used to call when we would all get together to talk about the current state of the X-Books, Grey Malkin Roundtables. Because that's where the X-Men are. They're the Institute. And taking it away from them, you know, it definitely left the feeling of a ghost. That was beautiful. <laughs> Now, there's more than one Nightcrawler-Warlock connection. Like, one of the most gorgeous Nightcrawler pages of all time comes in the Sienkiewicz era of the New Mutants. Nightcrawler looks beautiful, soaring through the page in Sienkiewicz's glorious pencil work. So, if you're a fan of both Warlock and Nightcrawler, you should probably check out New Mutants. I think it's number 22. You know, Maddie, you had saying something about how you really felt there was, like, a religious vibe, and you were wondering if that might rub off on Warlock and the Phalanx. 
I think the main connection there for me would be, as I'd said in last week's episode, is that I think that Nightcrawler is poised to take a religious figure. And I'm curious to see where the phalanx is going to come into the picture, or rather when. I know you are not a fan of the technarchy. It's one of those things where there's so many pieces that we're being given, and so many events that we're being given out of order and so many events that we know are going to have to come eventually it's kind of hard especially and case in point is going to be the excalibur issue that we cover today but it's kind of hard to know which end is up right now one of the things that's making the x-men so upside down right now is despite the fact that the x-men are a team i feel like they're always fighting one guy at a time even when they're fighting the brotherhood they're fucking they're fighting fucking magneto you know what i mean like even when they're fighting the horsemen they're really fighting apocalypse but all of the X-Men's bad guys are on their team. So everyone they're fighting is a horde. It's the brood. It's the phalanx. It's literally fucking horticulture. The the Hominus Verendi, Orcus, the Hellfire Club, the new Hellfire Club, rather. Yeah, everyone they're fighting is a group of people. And I think that's part of what's dynamically changing how we're able to see the X-Men. There's no single foe. It seems like the X-Men are now like all mutants and the bad guys coming after them are just really anti them. That is very true. But I think we are starting to see hints that not all of the mutants are in this thing together. And so are you telling me you think that Apocalypse might not really be a wildcat? He might not really be here to wave his hands up in the air. Do you really mean to tell me Mr. Sinister is not interested in bopping to the top? I am saying exactly that. High school Uh. (laughs) mutantsicle. Gotta get your, get your, get your, get your head in the game. We all might not be in this together. So much as the land is not even. So randomly seeing Arako and Krakoa put together in X-Men number two, so many months ago, and granted so many months without books, but that's probably going to be such a pivotal role and set the stage for the events of Ten of Swords. Definitely hard to know who's in it together, where we are, what's coming. One thing I know that's coming is a great reckoning. A great reckoning is upon us because I I cannot even fucking imagine how none of us caught that there's like... 16 swords and like 14 people holding them we referenced the promo image and nobody thought to say let's pull it up let's Let's, count let's really take a second there's way more than 10 swords here oh yeah 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 now i know we brought up the theory you know we were talking about how what if doug has something to do with kitty not being able to come back but kyle you and i were talking this morning and you had an idea that like shook me to my krakoan core I don't even remember why this came to mind, but I remember seeing masks showing up in Marauders, and I was kind of confused about why they just keep featuring mask. And then something came to mind that maybe Kate isn't actually dead. What if the Marauders are doing a long con in order to suss out who has been stealing the medicine that they're smuggling and Kate has been transformed by mask in order to hide her whereabouts. 
looking back at the rules proposed when resurrect when the resurrection process was first revealed is that there is no explicit reason someone can't be resurrected. It's only they don't do it unless they have confirmation somebody is dead. That being said, there was a lot of time between when Kitty was attacked by Sebastian to when Kitty was found by Bishop. It's really possible for something to have been slipped in and for everybody to believe Kate is dead. I am still the proponent that Emma would have a psychic link with Kate because not only was Emma asking other people to watch over Kate, I feel like Emma has noticed that Kate's going through a lot with this whole situation and would do everything in her power to make sure that she is protected and okay. There is, without a direct statement, there is nothing that can make me believe that Emma doesn't know what happened. There's a lot of featuring with Mask, and there's, something has to be up. It doesn't just sit right with me. Sebastian's getting away scot-free. I really think that there, there is a... The plan is afoot, and somebody is trying to, you know, oust the rat. I definitely agree. The only thing that I could even think to add is that for me personally... I'm convinced, my convictions are set, that for whatever reason, the same reason that Kate cannot be resurrected is the same reason that she cannot travel through the Krakoan Gate. So whether or not that that's the Kate that we've known this whole time has been a mask persona, I think that whatever it is, the reason that Kate cannot use the Krakoan Gates and the reason that Kate cannot be revived during the Resurrection Protocol must be one and the same, because otherwise, that is Krakoan cosmic bad luck. Oh, now I'm like, okay, hold on. They mentioned that Moira faked her death with a Shi'ar Golem, and it's so weird to me that they, like, really focused on that. Not a psychic illusion, not a technology thing. No, this was a Shi'ar Golem, and I understand it's because it was during Operation Zero Tolerance. No, I understand it's because it was during Dream's End, which was immediately after... Maximum security, so the Shi'ar were just like all over the fucking place. But what if the Kate that died is a Shi'ar golem and our Kate has been nowhere to be found for like a hot minute? And what if she comes back and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with these X-Men? These aren't the X-Men. You're all immortal and you're all going at other governments and you're hoarding medicine and that's not appropriate or cool at all. And you're terroristy and... You're putting Apocalypse in charge of a lot of things. That would explain, to piggyback off of a Jonah theory, I think that that comes right out of the pages of Marauders 8 when there's the confrontation between Emma and Storm and Emma takes the high road and Storm is allowed to be emotional. I wonder if Emma has some sort of knowledge of this because I can't imagine Emma being fooled by a Shi'ar Golem to that extent. So to your point, to give credence to the Shi'ar Golem theory, I wonder if Emma has been putting on this illusion while still having the Kate Pride potentially working in the background as her Red Queen. Golem, golem, and golem, golem, and golem, golem, and golem, golem. Side tangent, my brain didn't go to Black Eyed Peas. I went to Rihanna Ponder Replay. It doesn't matter which show we're on. You stan Riri hard. I do. I, she's literally the most successful in terms of everything, including music and business and branding deals. The most successful female artist. So we stand a money queen. Bitch better have my money. 
one of the things that, that makes Kate so fascinating is she can't be on a team without being the heart of it. It's why even though she's kind of dead, maybe dead, not dead, I don't know. Maybe it's a fucking Shi'ar golem. Black Eyed Peas said so. So... Even if Kate is dead, she's still the heart of the book, and that's because Kate is always the heart of every team she's on. And I kind of feel like that's never been more true than it was of Excalibur, which is why seeing her show up with Ray in Excalibur number 10 was, like, everything to me. Now, Kyle, if I'm not mistaken, you're pretty you're pretty happy to see Kate and Ray together. Oh, I shipped them together so much. And they came in on a ship! So I just want to double check if their code name would be like rate. Would you say that you love yourself a Bonnie rate? Ooh, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, it's just the luck of the draw. I can't make you love it if you don't. Oh. All right. Well, let's give them something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. So you remember this sort of Kate Ray from classic Excalibur. I do, yeah. Uh, they were pretty much best friends, but they were kind of coded a little closer than that, if you ask me. Real gay. Yeah. Mad oh, yeah. gay. Yeah. So. So, now, Maddie, I gotta assume this is probably this, you know, hound look. This is one of the only ways you know Rachel. Yeah, you know, funny enough, nothing about seeing Rachel was surprising to me because it wasn't until she got cleaned up as a teacher that I ever really saw her not in her hound outfit, Days of Future Past. I was mostly surprised, as I'm sure we all were, to see Kate out and about. She was in that scarf that looks like Bishop's scarf, and it made me think of when Bishop looked real hot in The Last Marauders. So hot. That was a great look. Oh, uh, so a, hot. That was a great appearance. Like, good for you. Jonah, you probably glimpsed rachel at best besides her original appearance in days of future past which also had a very kate-centric story funny enough where their fate maybe have been intertwined uh i literally know nothing about rachel to quote chris claremont himself as to why they are very heavily coded gay he originally intended for them to end up together that's what he wanted to do he was never really able to get there eventually i'm not sure the full story but they were supposed to be a couple that being said fascinating rachel uh, rachel's okay so much implication currently kate and emma you know kate and and rachel i definitely was getting some kind of vibe i just get vibe vibes off of betsy i don't know if there's any canon to that but you know i feel there I, is some yeah i i definitely i definitely can sense that the three of them together her interaction with rachel being very or or that's that's also a really horrible way of thinking things just try, trying to suss out the sexual undertone of, well, of two female characters. You're not looking for it if not... you if you feel that there is a genuine spark between them. You know, as someone who knows you're a great ally. And if it makes you feel better, because I think you're associating a cultural term with like like an academic term. I think you mean you're you see romantic entanglement or or chemistry not necessarily sex for sure. but chemistry but if i can get the falcon wolverine and cyclops video pack i um if that if that menmutant.com video could be made available to my uh direct messages you're acting like wolverine and scott wouldn't be on sean cody they're kind of men over 30 if you think yeah about it. they're they're a little old for that um, I, I I only know enough to say there wherever two verse men videoing uh, ends up on the internet. So okay, yeah, right. you're in. There we go. You're in. Now, what people might not realize 
is there isn't just like mad history to Kitty. There actually is kind of like mad history tying Betsy to Excalibur. And like, I know everybody's like, oh, well, Brian, so Braddock, Braddock, yeah. But a little bit more. Earlier on in Betsy's timeline, when she was still only in the pages of Marvel UK under the pen of guys like Jamie Delano, Alan Moore, and Alan Davis, she took on the mantle of Captain Britain when at one point Brian had quit. And if you want to know what she looked like, how do I explain it? She looked like an angelic fireworks ice pop. And just so glorious and amazing with that fucking hair and it's such a great look and she suffered some severe tragedies and this look was on the heels of the jasper's warp which was reality being torn asunder marvel ultimately wouldn't allow claremont to use jasper's in marvel comics outside of a couple of small appearances like x-men 200 and instead we saw jamie gain those abilities jamie had always been a little bit ne'er to do well but he became specifically like a bad fucking dude and has these reality warping powers and we've seen betsy come up against jamie before we've seen betsy come up against people as captain britain before but we've never had them together i will say i'm pretty sure we can all agree this is the best betsy look ever her classic captain britain is the best uh, Mama, look, everybody needs to look up her hair, because that hair is it. That's number one. Number two, uh, Betsy's everything. We stand a queen who can serve looks, can kill somebody, and has a personality as well. She's a triple threat. But I, does everyone assume she's tone deaf? Like, completely tone deaf? Tone, like, I mean, up, down, has no idea what's happening. I, I, mm. I imagine she has a beautiful speaking voice, but I imagine nothing else comes out of it. Nothing, nothing good. There's nothing. It's, it's... There's something unique in its like dysfunction. There's there's something there's something uniquely wrong about her speech. It's so it's very wabi sabi well, singing. And, and you know, <laughs> it's very wabi sabi singing. Now I feel really uncomfortable saying, and I'm sure that didn't help from all the years that she spent in a body that was not her own. Uh, true, absolutely. Imagine readjusting to not only your own body but your own your own vocal cords, your own your own the sound of your own voice. But I bet her lip sync karaoke would fucking bring it down. Chrissy Teigen or the mutant version of Chrissy Teigen, who I imagine is still just straight up Chrissy Teigen. She's super about that performance. I just imagine she takes off her classic Captain Britain leg scarves and just waves them around. She's doing some full-blown like flag dancing. Like sexy ribbon dancer. Sexy ribbon she dancer. would do great on celebrity lip sync battle. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's so much. You can hide so much in those sleeves alone. Oh, those sleeves are full of secrets. Bring some spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Betsy's important. <laughs> this week we are covering Excalibur number 10. Verse 10, A Crooked World. It's written by Teeny Howard. Art by Marcus Tu. Colors by Eric Arseniega. Lettering by VCs Corey Pettit. And designed by Tom Muller. The day before this, this book came out, I managed to catch a tweet from Teeny Howard. And she said, it's a strange one for strange days. Read carefully. So I knew that something big was going to be happening. And this was, there's a lot to unpack here. We've got reality being warped. We have all kinds of weird stuff. Kate shows up and Rachel and... If you had to sum up your excitement in this issue, what would it be? Uh, new fake core. 
New fake Maddie. core. New fake core is how I would talk about the book. Would you would you say that they are Captain Jamie's? I would say they are going to be Captain Britain corpses if they're not careful. So, okay, I'm a Captain Britain purist, and by Captain Britain purist, I mean keep changing the canon. Change it nonstop. I love the addition of the Lionheart core. I love the ways it's transformed the series. And honestly, this is my favorite issue of Excalibur by far. I love everything about it, but, like, poor Kyle and Maddie and Jonah have listened to me for days be like, but they're not real Captain Britons. They're pretenders to the throne because they're not... They, they should have their own amulets and they should be from separate realities. And it's they're pretenders. And like, it, it kind of bothers me, but like in a cool way, I'm invested in knowing where this is going. I am a big fan of bringing back the core. I think you can have a core for every fallen universe, even if all of them haven't popped back in yet. One of the things that makes me the happiest is that everything about this is an attempt to connect back to like the Captain Britain I super duper love. This is called Crooked World. And like you guys hear me talk about Mad Jim Jasper's Crooked World all the fucking time. One thing that I wanted to ask the group specifically, did anybody else get a major volume one vibe with the pacing? It was the first issue in a long time since before the Cullen Bloodstone wolf skull chasing that it was one singular event extrapolated on for 27 pages. To that effect, I have a feeling that this, the events that we've seen now in issue 11, are an alternate take on issue 4, the post-civil uh, unrest in the UK. Like Kyle said, there's so much to take away from the subtext in this issue for one event. So one of the reasons that I think people go to AUs too much, like alternate realities, is, or I guess I should say alternate universes because I said AU. One of the things that drives me nuts is when people overuse an AU, they don't understand that the best way to use an AU is as a transformational mirror. Show me an alternate reality that shines a new light on the reality that I give a shit about. And not like in a dismissive way, not like, no, fuck your alternate realities. Because like a lot of them are really cool. Exiles is one of my favorite books. Exiles, a book where essentially... Betsy played a Captain Britain leading an Excalibur on a cross-time caper, so, you know, it tracks. But one of the things that a great AU does is it shines this, like, you know, super fucking killer parallel on our world. And I feel like even though we're told this isn't our universe, I still feel like my characters grew. This reinforced that, like, my Betsy is probably romantically inclined toward Pete Wisdom. Everybody should want to have sex with Pete Wisdom. He's just so hot. You know, Pete and Brian are like my ship. So if I can't have Pete and Brian together, Pete and Betsy, that's what a huge upgrade for Pete that is. And I, I just feel like there's something so great about Teeny Howard giving me a story that moves forward Richter's powers too, right? Like, I feel like I learned a little bit more about everyone, even though this was an AU. Okay. First off, I'm calling, uh, clearly, uh, Nico is taking after her whiness. That's number one. Number two, uh, I feel bad for Rogue because I think she got the worst outfit out of all of them. That's number two. Oh, Rogues is my favorite. Oh no, how Rogues dare is you? My favorite. How dare you? Oh, I think, I think, I think it gives her face a real bad shake. But I think that it is, it is the most dynamic outside of maybe Jubilee's Union Jack glasses. Uh, I think Jubilee oh, has I the think, best one. I think followed, followed Ju by Richter. Jubilee has the best one for sure. Now, but just while we're talking about the Captain Jamies, can I just throw out the theory that these aren't the only Excalibur Captain Jamies? I think very specifically, the core that we saw at the end of issue 10 with Obaluna Saturnine and the ones that we've seen take a hold of their mantle in this issue are two specifically different sets of these characters 
as the captives. Because if you look at the end of the issue in the halls of the Starlight Citadel, there are banners of them hanging. There would be no reason to display ornate banners, not hate banners, not propaganda banners, but ornate banners of the, as I've coined them now, or, well, excuse me, as Nico's coined them, and I have copped uh, the Jamie Corps. There would be no reason to hang them in affection and then to denounce them. And to go back to Opa Luna Saturnine's closing out of issue 10, it seemed when she said, I, I'm willing to destroy anything by any means, and she she gestures, you know, menacingly, and they're there in the background, it seemed almost as if they're a tool for her to wield at her disposal. I've, I've read a little bit of Opal. I love her. I know Nico loves her. And Nico, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like her whyness, Opal Luna Saturnine, represents the most neutral character you can probably be because she has a duty and she will do whatever it takes to uphold that duty. It doesn't matter whether the intents become good or evil. She is there to serve a purpose and a job and she will do whatever is necessary to make sure that task is done. And like, number one, super dead on. Absolutely. All about it. And I feel like so much of what you just said and what Maddie just said is backed up in the like breathtaking job 2 did. Marcus 2's storytelling, specifically for me, the point at which Betsy's like lying on the ground and the energy is crackling out of her amulet and everybody's standing around her. There's something really iconic about the backs of everybody that tells you it's those characters if you know them. And then that next page where the universe is shattered. This isn't just that the panels are split. It's fucking cracking a fucking part. And... Now they're in their very iconic modern outfits that still look kind of uniform-ish, which transitions them into the next page. And not to be weird, but Richter's got on the same scarf as Kate. And I don't mean this sort of like deficient, but what if, I mean, if Jamie really is manufacturing these realities on demand, he's only going to have so many sim models to work with. He's only going to have so many builds and designs covering Betsy's face with a version of the mask that his brother wore actually makes a lot of sense. And the dynamism that two is able to deliver this idea to me. And then the haloing around her whiness on the next page as she calls for death to her loyal core. I, I, I feel like this is the next step of a really grand story that's been told by so many people who've passed it down and it's like fucking excited. Like this is a really cool time to like these characters. Arcing out of the amulet, that is the world shattering around the amulet. The separation of the so, realities, yeah. So there's there's five sections of that amulet, one for each member of, of the team. It's splitting into the five incursions. Yeah, and it, you're absolutely right. When I look at it on the next page, it really looks like that central crack like represents the amulet's crack. <laughs> um, because I would be curious to know whose voice this was in. In issue 9, uh, the language was very clear to indicate that Opal Luna Saturn 9 had replaced Merlin as the Magistrix of the Omniverse. So I would be curious to know who whose disembodied voice it is that is endowing these abilities. Is it Jamie's or is it Opal Luna Saturn? See, now that's that's my shit, right? That's my question. Because, so when Merlin does this, and, you know, Jamie, nowhere to be found back then. Nuh-uh, he's not there, right? Up in the sky, big space gods, before they have names, Merlin and Roma. And Merlin says, be silent, mortal. Thou hast not been given leave to speak. Thou art in a most ancient circle of power. And thou art here to be judged on peril of thy immortal soul. And Brian's like, nah, son. And then Merlin says, 
Hearken unto me, Brian Braddock, for I and the Lady of the Northern Skies are no dream. Thou must choose either the amulet or the sword, life or death, for thee, and mayhaps thy world as well. He then continues in the next issue to say, The amulet or the sword, the power of life or that of death for thee. And it's wild because the rest of the information, just Brian knows it. And now, and none of that language seems to mirror what we get here in issue 10. Thou hast been tested. Thou hast served Otherworld, and though you hail not from Britain, when Otherworld was left without a defender in its darkest hour of need, it was thou who hast chosen to take up the amulet and serve in glory. By taking the amulet in the hour of need, and through thy service to Otherworld, thou hast shown thyself to be a hero. Hail Captain Britain. None of that language mirrors that of Merlin's. It does sound like the way Jamie would kind of be like, and this is what a good guy does. Uh, here we are. Yes, yes, you made it. Um, I'm not going to do a terrible accent. I've turned your colon into butterflies. <laughs> and like, that's hey, the kind hey, of thing Jamie does. Hail Captain Britain. Hail Captain Britain. So I guess that is kind of the question. Are these really Captain Britons or not? We've kind of danced around it. We've talked a bit about it. I'm going to say this discussion with you lovely gents I'm walking away from this, and I'm going to say it really depends on how extraordinary you think Monarch's powers are. If you believe Jamie really is capable of what he claims, which is a fundamental manipulation of reality by viewing the universe as string theory and tugging at, cutting, and retying strings, if you believe it that way, could these really be amulets? Could he have really mended together several amulets? And if there is a fifth amulet, or a sixth amulet, or a ninth amulet, is he saving one for himself? I would say I think they're kind of real Captain Britons, but they were made in a not real way. I believe that the taking of the amulet runs concurrently in this alternate reality with the completion of the pinnacle ritual, with the uh, establishing the gate on Krakoa. I don't know how they're connected. Um, not entirely the idea guy. However, if this was to be running in current time, it should not be discredited that A and Jamie both have free reign over Morgan Le Fay, and who knows how much magic they would be able to siphon out of her, uh, in addition to Jamie's powers. So I would say that there, whatever is going on, whether it is reality warping alone or magic reality warping, uh, there's definitely some, some big forces in play. I think the answer to that question is loaded because the answer is yes, but also no. Yes, but really no. No, but really yes. It's, they are Captain Britain, but they're in these forged realities that were forced, and by any other means, they wouldn't become Captain Britain. This was a special exception that I think, because Britain was in such danger, that whoever this voice is that creates Captain Britain, this legacy, this was a manufactured situation created by Jamie that I don't think in a normal reality would ever happen. So I think while they are real Captain Britons, they aren't because this wouldn't happen under any regular circumstance. I feel like there will always be a Brit that would be in line to become Captain Britain over, you know, these four. So my thought about it was originally, yes, they're all Captain Britons in their own little fragmented universes. But then I kind of looked deeper and... I think that what this is, is a way for Jamie to 
create a power grab against A. And in order to do that, he needs to m multiply the power of Captain Britain by forcing it into everybody else. Because we, we have, if you look at the incursion page, where it describes the ways that he's fragmented the uh realities you see that there's there's two betsy's in the first reality incursion so there's still a normal betsy inside other worlds so you've got the five there and with that amount of captain britain power maybe he sees it as being able to push a out so that he can take his place as the monarch what a fascinating point. And you know what? All the more. And I'm not just saying that because it backs up my claim that there might be, <laughs> that there might be two Captain Jamie cores. Um, no, that is an absolutely fascinating point. I think, you know, Kyle, I hadn't thought of it as trying to multiply power until you said something. Yeah, the core is stronger when there's more of them. And now I'm wondering, is Brian going to start creating a Lionheart core? Are we going to get a core of Lionhearts is in some way... Is that part of what Ten of Swords is? Is this creating Captain Britons or creating Lionhearts? We know that Excalibur 12, which has her royal whiness on the cover playing chess, is a lead-in to Ten of Swords. And we know that A is all about that Otherworld booty, and he's trying to get all that magic out of Otherworld. And that is where Captain Britain kind of like magically sources from. So what if this core is at the core of Ten of Swords? It would make sense. I mean... Brian is featured on it, and he's not really a considered a mutant in Dawn of X. He's also still kind of a sad sack right now, let's not forget. That's true. And he's getting that one shot of classic crooked world issues called Marvel Tales. It's going to be like three ninety nine. It's going to reprint like 24 pages of the short stories from the UK, and that's coming out the same month, and it's got a Ten of Swords banner on it. Uh-huh. There's a lot of things I'm thinking about in terms of where this is supposed to be going, what's the end game. This isn't some one-off kind of thing you do. This is a huge story with a huge antagonist, protagonist, anti-hero. Who the fuck knows who Jamie is? He could be whatever he wants to be. There's a lot going on, and I think it would be an interesting lead-in to Ten of Swords. I'm also really interested in seeing... What is going to happen? You know, there are four Captain... Well, actually, there are five Captain Britons right now. One of which is somewhere in the other world, which I want to know what that Betsy's doing. But there's so much going on. As Kyle said, there's a lot to unpack. This is basically, you went on a two-week vacation level of suitcase you need to unpack. I think one of the craziest things is that, like, Betsy is playing this huge front and center role when half the time she's, like, dead or sidelined <laughs> or in a backup book. And Betsy playing a pivotal role Excalibur instead of being on the, like, edges of the Marvel Universe is central to the X-Men narrative. Mutants are mystified and magicified and have swords and they're fighting magical broods and there's incursions into reality via mysticism. And yet somehow it's still completely X-Men. I don't feel like I've sacrificed anything of my X-Men to gain this. You know, stuff with, you know, the resurrections aside... This is still really the X-Men at its core, and I feel really excited going into Ten of Swords with all of this in mind. 
Kyle, what are we covering next time? So next week, we will be covering uh, New Mutants number 10. But until next time, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Maddie, how about you? Uh, Well, if you like cats and share my anti-establishment rhetoric, you can follow me on Instagram at at the basely covetous man. I won't spell that for you. Oh, hey, Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me being Captain Britain online because I now have the amulet. And I'm also going to take the sword because I want to be both. On Twitter and Instagram, at Peak Jonah. You can also see me potentially in X, uh, Ten of Swords. I'm not going to spoil if I'm in it or not. That doesn't make any sense. Nico, where can everybody find you? Trying to figure out that joke. As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network here on Mondays and Thursdays on X is for Podcast, whether it's Modern Mondays. This show right here, this is X, where we cover the most recent X books, or it's Throwback Thursdays over on 80s Mutant Mania, where we talk all about the X-Men books that led us to this marvelous event. Don't forget to check us out on Tuesdays on HTML, where we're currently talking about the Star Wars universe, though shortly taking a break to cover the Fantastic Four. You won't want to miss that. There are four Fantastic Four movies to cover and that's three more than necessary you can also find me over on twitter and instagram over at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n but guys until we come back please remember it's an ever-changing evolving world you need to stay alert you need to stay aware read as much as you can understand the facts and remember it's about protecting people and it's about keeping people safe black lives matter and we need to be part of the change and until we come back next time guys keep those mutant lights lit bye bye goodbye goodbye